You are listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. It's always a privilege to be able to open God's Word to you. Uh, Today, we're going to be doing the concluding part of our sermon series, our accidental sermon series on the topic of identity of who I am, who am I, right? And uh, it all started because Taylor introduced us to this topic about a month ago, and it led, it was just so powerful, it led to this real exchange amongst the teaching team about saying, we should spend more time on this topic. And so a couple weeks ago, uh, Caleb spoke and shared Uh, about how our identity comes from being a creation of God as human beings, right? God has made us as human beings in his image, and this is a source of our identity because it's where our value comes from. It separates us from the rest of creation. There's something special about us as human beings deserving love, care, and respect. And then last week, Jesse shared that when we accept Christ as Savior, we become a child of God, He makes us a new creation. We are no longer slaves to sin. Our identity is found in Christ in being a child of God. So, my question today, this is what I want to finish with today. If our identity is so clear, right, that I'm I'm made in the image of God and that I'm a child of God if I've accepted him as Savior, if our identity is so clear, if it's so certain why do I have so many struggles with it? Right, this question, why do I doubt my value? I'm sure none of you have this happen, but it happens to me where one little thing goes wrong, right? I trip and fall, I slip on something, I say something I shouldn't say. It's, you know, it's a littlest thing perhaps, and I start beating myself up over it. I start to think about what a horrible person I am, how uncoordinated, uncouth, whatever it is, right? Like I beat myself up. We doubt our value. Maybe it's even bigger things, right? You find yourself in a relationship where you're physically abused, emotionally abused, verbally abused, and you stay there uh, putting up with it because you don't value yourself the way God values you. Another question, why do I try to be someone I'm not, right? The whole imposter syndrome, the fake it till you make it kind of thing. I polish up my exterior. I try to look like a better version of myself, an unreal version of myself. Go to my Facebook or Instagram. That's not me. I only post the good things. I don't post those moments that are not the prettiest parts of who I am, right? My life is not nearly as exciting as, you know, whatever I put out there on Instagram, and that's the way it is for many of us, right? We, we struggle with it trying to be someone that we're not. Why do I tend to overthink this question of who I am? I spend a ton of time. Who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose? It leads to this sort of intense navel-gazing self-absorption kind of perspective that leads us to a place that's not healthy. Because once we start to devolve into that, we spend all this time saying, well, I don't feel like this, so I must be this instead. So rather than embracing who God has made us to be, we have this desire to be something or someone else. Why does my identity get lost in the job I do? I bet if you guys said to me, Brian, who are you? That in less than three sentences, I would be including what I do for my job. 
That's not my identity. I could lose that job tomorrow, and it doesn't change who I am unless I've let myself be wrapped up in that as my identity, right? I'm still a child of God. I still have value because I'm a made in the image of God creation. But for so many of us, and this may be particularly true of men, our, we are, we, our identity becomes so tied up in what it is that we do for a job. So we, we have, our identity should be found in the fact that we're made in the image of God creation. If we've accepted Christ, our identity should be in the fact that we're a child of God and yet we struggle with this. And I'm gonna give you a couple of examples from scripture where we find out we're not the only people who've struggled with this. This has been from the beginning of time. So the first person I wanna introduce you to is a gentleman named Samson. It's found in the book of Judges. The book of Judges, you might remember, takes place in this time period between when the children of Israel had taken over the land of Canaan in the uh, uh, arrival of the first king that they have. So it's this time period um, probably hundreds of years, actually, where they were, um, God would raise up an individual to deal with a, a conflict or a, a challenge that was going on for the people of Israel. Oftentimes, the person was a political, military, or spiritual leader uh, for them. So Samson is during this time period of the Judges. And we're introduced to Samson in uh, Judges chapter 13, and we find out that Samson's parents had not been able to have children. And this would have been a source of great scorn in the culture that they were in. This was a very difficult situation. And as they've gotten older in life, an angel of the Lord shows up to his mom and says, you're going to have a child. You're going to have a son. And this is, I got exciting news for you. And she's, he says this, this child is to be a Nazarite for life. And you're like, what in the world is a Nazarite? Well, we go back to the, uh, the, uh, the law, the beginning of the Old Testament, and we find out there's this thing called the Nazarite vow. And the idea of it was is that a person would set themselves aside for a time period for a particular focus, for a particular worship of God, for a particular desire to grow in relationship with God, for service to him in some special kind of a way, and they would make this Nazarite vow to the Lord. A little bit like what Jason talked about this morning related to Lent, right? There's this idea that for a set time period, I will refrain from something so that I can better serve the Lord, better focus on what this season is about. Um, but for the Nazarite, there are actually three standards that they had to keep. One was that they could not touch a dead body or corpse. We don't tend to do a lot of that in our culture today. But uh, Number two is they could not uh, drink or touch alcohol. So it's sort of like dry January, right? Uh, there was a Nazarite commitment there. And then the third standard was that they actually couldn't cut their hair either. So individuals would make a Nazarite vow, and it would be maybe for a week or 30 days or whatever it was, and that was their commitment during that time period so they could focus on the Lord. But for Samson, this was going to be different. This was going to be his lifetime. That was the, the uh, commitment that the um, parents made to the angel. So we are reintroduced to Samson again in uh, Judges chapter 14. He's now a young adult. So we're going to take a look at reading this passage together, Judges chapter 14. One day when Samson was in Timnah, one of the Philistine women caught his eye. There's so much going on in that one little verse. So Samson was from the tribe of Dan, which has happened to be very closely connected or closely uh, linked physically to the land of the Philistines. 
And uh, so Samson goes to a Philistine city. To make it even more complicated, this was the group of people who were oppressing the Israelites during this time period. So Samson is, let's just make it really clear, Samson's where he shouldn't be hanging out with people he shouldn't be hanging out with, doing what he shouldn't be doing, lusting after a woman there. And I started thinking about that. I thought, oh, how often does that happen to me in my life? I look back at the worst moments of who I am, and oftentimes I was where I shouldn't have been, hanging out with people I shouldn't have been hanging out with, doing things I shouldn't have been doing. So that's our setup to our story, right? It doesn't end up in a very good place. Verse two, when he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. Says something about perhaps his relationship with his parents. He's not very respectful. His father and mother objected. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among all the Israelites you can marry, they asked? Why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? Now, when the children of Israel had conquered the land, God had made it really clear that they were not to intermarry with the people that were from that land. They were only to marry within their, uh, those that were also Jewish individuals. And so uh, Samson is destined, is, is pushing to, is seeking to disobey God in a very fundamental area. His parents, um, and this is interesting because to understand it, you have to understand in the culture of their day, his parents got to choose who he was going to marry. That was the way it happened within their culture. And so when he goes to them, it's actually in a position of power where they could say, no, we're not going to do this for you. But they don't. They give in uh, to him. And yes, they make a case for not doing it, but they still go ahead and do it. But Samson told his father, get her for me. She looks good to me. His father and mother didn't realize the Lord was at work in this, creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines who ruled over Israel at that time. So sometimes when we read verse 4, we're like, oh, see, it's okay. Samson's, Samson's not doing something horribly wrong. You know? But when you really look at verse 4, this is what you should see. That despite the fact that Samson was disobeying the Lord, God was going to use it for doing something good. You ever find yourself in a situation where you like completely blew it and yet somehow God uses that situation for good and you look at it and realize it's only mercy that it's happening and the fact that he's really all about his kingdom building work regardless of what we're uh, doing. Verse five, as Samson and his parents were going down to Timnah, a young lion suddenly attacked Samson near the vineyards of Timnah. At that moment, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him and he ripped the lion's jaws apart with his bare hands. He did it as easily as if it were a young goat, but he didn't tell his father or mother about it. When Samson arrived in Timnah, he talked with the woman and was very pleased with her. Later, when he returned to Timnah for the wedding, he turned off the path to look at the carcass of the lion, and he found that a swarm of bees had made some honey in the carcass. He scooped some of the honey into his hands and ate it along the way. He also gave some to his father and mother, and they ate it. But he didn't tell them he had taken the honey from the carcass of the lion. So what's Samson's identity? God set him up and said, you're a Nazarite. This is a special commitment that you have. You have a special relationship, a special place for me. So Samson starts his story by being in the wrong place with the wrong people, doing what he shouldn't be doing, and now see where it's led, where he's violated his identity the first way, right? He's touched this carcass of the lion to get at the honey that was inside the lion. So he's already violated this aspect of who he is, gone against the identity that God has given him, and we continue on in the story. Uh, verse 10, as his father was making final arrangements for the marriage, Samson threw a party at Timnah, as was the custom for elite young men. This word party means a drinking celebration. 
So here he is, second strike. Samson's just about to break the second part of the Nazarite commitment that he was, uh, had made. The idea that this was part of his identity was now being further destroyed with the choices that he was making. When the bride's parents saw him, they selected 30 young men from the town to be his companions. Samson said to them, let me tell you a riddle. If you solve my riddle during these seven days of the celebration, I will give you 30 fine linen robes and 30 sets of festive clothing. But if you can't solve it, then you must give me 30 fine linen robes and 30 sets of, um, 30 sets of festive clothing. All right, they agreed. Let's hear your riddle. So he said, out of the one who eats came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Three days later, they were still trying to figure it out. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to explain the riddle for us, or we will burn down your father's house with you in it. Do you invite us to this party just to make us poor? Now, just as a bit of explanation, uh, this passage calls Samson and this woman husband and wife. Uh, in our understanding of it, they wouldn't be. This would be more like an engagement time period because this would have been a seven-day celebration party that would have gone on. It would have finished with some kind of a ceremony, and then there would have been a consummation of the wedding, uh, and that would have been the... that in our culture would see that would be what would make you husband and wife in their culture once you begin your engagement period which would have been the beginning of this week uh, that is being described they would have called them husband and wife even though they weren't living together at the time uh, verse 16 so samson's wife came to him in tears and said you don't love me you hate me you have given my people a riddle but you haven't told me the answer dude you should be running away but anyway um <laughs> I haven't even given the answer to my father or mother, he replied. Why should I tell you? So she cried whenever she was with him and kept it up for the rest of the celebration. Oh, boy. At last, on the seventh day, he told her the answer because she was tormenting him with her nagging. Then she explained the riddle to the young men. This is very unbecoming behavior, ladies, just for the record. <laughs> so before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town came to Samson with their answer, what is sweeter than honey, what is stronger than a lion? So it goes on after that. So Samson has to give them what he promised to give them, but he also exacts revenge on them. And his story, his life goes on. Like further, he actually defiles the last aspect of the Nazarite vow, the Nazarite commitment by having his hair cut later uh, in the story in Judges. So um, the purpose for my sharing this today, though, is to see this is an example of somebody where God had given him an identity and he goes against that identity. He is, um, you know, sins because of the choices that he makes. Let's jump ahead to the New Testament. We're going to be looking at the story of Peter and Jesus calling Peter, and it's found in John chapter 1, verses 40 through 42. And this happens, the story that's set up for it is that John the Baptist has been going around uh, baptizing individuals, promising the, future, the coming of the Messiah, and he sees Jesus, and he said, oh, here is the Messiah. And so some of the people that were with John at that moment become and start, uh, start to follow Jesus, become his disciples. So starting in John chapter 1, verse 40, it says there, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John had said and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus, looking intently at Simon. Jesus said, your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. So Jesus is going to give Peter an identity in this moment. And to understand this, we have to understand the culture of their day. So for us, when we give a name to a child, we oftentimes choose a name because it sounds great with our last name. 
We had some relative that had the name. Somebody popular or famous has the name, so we choose it for our child. But in their culture, particularly if you were given a name as an older individual, it meant something. It was really important. It was a significant thing. It was part of your identity. And so Jesus gives Simon a new name, uh, calls him Peter. Interestingly, the name Simon means listening or hearing. What do we know about Peter? That was not his personality. He was impetuous. He was outspoken. He was the first person to answer questions when the, when the opportunity came. And so Jesus says to him, no, you're not going to be called Simon. You're going to be called Peter, a word that means rock. And the idea of it was this idea of something that was unmovable, that was a, could be a foundation of something, that was going to be something that things could be built on, that it was going to be something that was firm and stood firm. And we see that, right, in Peter's life in the book of Acts, where he goes on and he's a leader of the church of Jerusalem. He's a person that represents Christ by preaching on several occasions uh, and is, is a very powerful leader in that early church. But between this time and that time, we see a person who forgets his identity, who uh, goes against what God has set for him, right? Because what happens is, in, when Jesus is leading up to his uh, crucifixion, he's captured by the Jewish leaders and Roman soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they bring Jesus to the former high priest's home. And there's a garden area there. And Peter sneaks into this garden. There's a whole bunch of servants around. Uh, they're warming themselves by a fire. And one of them says to him, weren't you with Jesus? Aren't you one of his followers? And Peter denies him three times. So Peter fails to live up to the name, the identity that God has given him. He fails to be a rock, and he's like a pebble that gets washed away in that moment. Um, so as we think about these stories, right, we think about Samson, we think about Peter, we realize it's part of what happens to us in our human condition that we deal with as challenges related to issues of identity, and I want us to understand why. This is something that Caleb shared a couple weeks ago, and I want to draw, go into the passage again, just draw out a couple more pieces to it. But it starts, this comes from the story of the original sin, right, of Adam and Eve in the garden. And we see this in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. It says there, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. So Satan comes to Adam and Eve in the form of a snake, he says, one day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So the temptation that Adam and Eve face in this moment is a temptation related to identity. So get this, right? God has made them as human beings. That's their value. But he didn't make them God. He didn't make them, he made them in his image, yes, but he didn't make them God. So there was a separation between them and who they were. They were separate and different from the rest of creation. He'd give them in a role in the garden. He went and walked with them, it says, in the, in the garden. He communed with them. He was in fellowship with them. But they were not God. And what's the temptation that they fall for at this moment? They wanted to be like God, is the description that's given here. That's what led Adam and Eve to uh, commit the sin, to disobey God in the way they did, is they forsake the identity that God had given them and want something else instead. 
I want to finish today by just one more example of this that I think is really powerful because it relates to the story of Christ. It relates to Jesus. And we see this in Matthew chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 13. It's the story of his baptism. It says there in verse 13, Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. If you're here today and you're not really sure, what is this, what's baptism? What does that mean? It's one of two sacraments that are part of the, the modern church, one of them being the Lord's Supper that we experienced earlier, right, the communion that we had. And the second one is, is baptism. And the baptism is this picture this public profession of our relationship with God done in the form of a picture that describes what happens. So typically in a baptism experience, somebody, a pastor, you know, typically dunks you into the water, so dips you back into the water. And in that moment, that's symbolic of the fact that you've died to sin. And then lifts you up out of the water is this symbol, symbolism of being brought into new life with Christ. And so it's this picture of what happens in our relationship with God. So Jesus has asked John to baptize him. Verse 16, after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove settling on him and a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. So what's the identity of Christ? What's the identity of Jesus? He's the son of God. He's my deeply beloved son. And so uh, we, it's establishing who Christ is, what his identity is. Chapter four, this happens immediately afterwards. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, jump off, for the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. So what's the first aspect of the temptation that Satan brings to Jesus? He says, if you are the son of God. So he's just been established that that's his identity. And where does Satan attack him? Right at that same exact point in the identity that God has given him. And I'm telling you guys, if this happened to Jesus, you better believe it happens to us as well. Satan's attack on you and me is found in the area of identity. Think about those questions that we asked earlier. Why do I doubt my value? When I'm in the lowest moments, when I think I'm a horrible person, I've done something stupid, I, you know, I am defeated. I am broken that moment. I'm emotionally a mess, right? Satan loves it when I'm in that condition. I'm in no place where I'm going to be doing anything for God's kingdom. I'm in no place to be a source of joy for anybody else in my life. Uh, there's a brokenness there, and Satan loves it when we're in that condition. Why do I try to be someone I'm not? I'm not. Oh, one of the things Satan loves the most is hypocrisy, right? Polish up the exterior because when it's not you and it's not the real version of you and you're projecting that on others, it's easy to crack that. And when people see hypocrisy, what's the one thing that turns them off from Christians? It's hypocrisy. But it's led, it begins with our failure to embrace the identity God has given us and trying to be someone that we're not. 
Why do I tend to overthink the question of who I am? If Satan can get us into a position where we're devolved into this uh, complete selfishness in terms of answering this question of who am I, who am I, who am I, what's my purpose, what am I all about, answering it in terms of, of things that I feel rather than the identity that Christ has given me, then he puts you in a place of being defeated, ineffective, not being able to be used in the way that you should be used. Why does my identity get lost in the job that I do, right? When Satan gets you where you think that this is what you're all about is the job that you do, you become a workaholic, you set aside the kinds of other relationships that should be a whole lot more important in your life because you're so focused on what's going on in that job environment. And then when it's torn away from you, you're uh, you know, broken, wrecked because of what's happened to you in that experience. There's a reason why Satan works at attacking the identity of who we are because that's a way to make you be ineffective for God's kingdom. So let's go back as the worship team comes up. Let's go back and remember what we've talked about in this sermon series. Your value comes from being in a made in the image of God creation. It's something special. You need to embrace that. And secondly, if you've accepted Christ as Savior, you're a child of God. You're an heir to him. And that is a special place for you. Embrace that. Hold on to that. Don't, be, don't feel that when you're having these attacks related to identity that you need to give in to what they are. Let's close in prayer. God, we are so grateful to you that we, you have made us in your image that we have a capacity, a soul that needs to be filled by you, that needs to be in relationship with you. Uh, you've made us with creative capacity, the ability to live, to think, to reason, and all of those things separate us from the rest of creation. But we know we have that identity because you've given that to us. And Lord, uh, we have the opportunity to be your child, to have that be our identity by accepting you as Savior, to recognizing that I can't make myself right before you, but you've provided a way through the gift of your Son. And when I accept your Son as Savior, I become your child. And what a glorious place that that is, a place that brings peace and joy. Lord, as we go out today, Joy, just help us to recognize that uh, the enemy is at work seeking to destroy, seeking to attack us in this area of identity. And Lord, I just would ask that we would embrace the identity that you've given us. We ask this in Christ's name. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.